Good morning, good morning. Oh, and, and to all of those who are out celebrating the fact that school is over, good morning to you. And to all of those who are already regretting that school is over, good morning to you as well. My name is Jordan. Welcome to Family of Grace. We are glad you're here. I was talking to a guy taking a nap in our field this morning, and I said, if you want to join us for worship, and it just struck me, what a weird, what a weird word that is. Because in modern day America, we Worship is just not in the common parlance of what we read on the media and the people that we talk to. I said, how do I explain this? Um, We orient our lives around what is true and meaningful and best. And so we're gathering together weekly on a Sunday morning because we believe that if you want to know what is good, what the good life is and what life is all about, you look at Jesus and you follow after him. And so we gather together on Sunday mornings to remind ourselves of who Jesus is, of what he taught, of how he lived, and the difference that that makes for our life. It is our worship. It is ascribing worth and esteem and significance to Jesus and to the life that is to be found in him. So I want to welcome you to that this morning. Good time to make sure. All right. I did check this. My clicker is not yet working. But, uh... If you guys had the option to go explore territory that has never been seen by a human before or rarely, if ever, seen, where would you go? Would anyone, anyone here want to go to outer space? Yeah, okay, right? Me too. As a kid, I dreamed of being an astronaut. I would love to see the stars of the universe undimmed by the earth and light in the atmosphere. I'd love to see it. I do not possess the technological know-how to get there. Trust me, you don't want me building your spaceship, all right? And it's a matter of trust, but I'd love to see it. Now, other people, Eric, I'm gonna, I don't know what's going on, but I can't advance a slide here. Other people have a different dream. There's a local company up in Everett, Washington, uh, whose dream is to take people on tours of the deep ocean to go visit shipwrecks and underwater canyons. They're called Ocean Gate. Oh, there we go. I got to go back here a ways. All right, Ocean Gate. And in 2021 and 2022, they sent a deep sea submersible to go view the shipwreck of the Titanic. And just last Sunday, they launched an expedition with five people to go and to explore the Titanic. They have the largest deep water uh, submarine to go 13,000 feet below sea level and to to carry people to go and view this uh, amazing find, the sh- uh, shipwreck from 1904 in the North Sea. And they're, they're venturing where people have not gone before. They're going to go see new sites. They're on uncharted territory. And really, just like Ocean Gate and, and the deepwater submarine, everyone that we encounter in some way is on an exploration. You woke up this morning to uncharted territory. It might feel familiar, but you've never been here before. And if you have small kids, you know how quickly life stages hit, where you, as you're like, I don't know what it's like to be a modern day, you know, middle schooler or a modern day teenager, but I have gone through puberty before. Trust me, it's bad. Um, And we try to guide people through life. But then we all run into this thing called death. And what happens, what happens at death? Who do we trust? And the world is full of voices of the kind of life that leads to a good death, that leads to significance now and hope for some kind of future, you know, beyond. And currently, one of the major players in our modern day world of what leads to the good life is Disney and and Hollywood and the media. So not to particularly pick on Disney, they're just easy. You know, Disney will tell you that if you want the good life, look within. Explore your feelings. Get to know yourself. Get in touch with what your desires are. And then follow your dreams. You know, when you wish upon a star, makes no difference who you are. Anything your heart desires will will come to you. Thus says Jiminy Cricket, it must be true. You know, explore your feelings. This is the good life. This is how to progress in a meaningful way. And the reason I bring up uh, Ocean Gate and their submarine, the Titan, and the reason that I bring up Disney is because this morning the Israelites are about to enter uncharted territory. We're going someplace new, and it's exciting 
because all of God's promises are about to come true. If you've been traveling with us through our series in the Torah, you know that everything has been leading to this point. God rescued a nation of slaves out of Egypt in order that he might bring them where? Well, to the promised land. There was, you know, a detour we had to make. We had to go to Mount Sinai. Israel spent a year in the wilderness. They weren't training to be epic soldiers. Instead, they were learning to be epic worshipers. They needed to know who they are as a people, who this God is that they're in relationship with. And then they're on their way to the promised land. And this morning, in chapter 13 of the book of Numbers, Yahweh says to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. And we're like, yes, finally. Because if you remember all the way back in November 6th of last year, we went through Genesis chapter 15, where God told the ancient ancestor of the Israelites, a guy named Abraham, and Yahweh said, know for certain, for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and they will be enslaved there. Yep, that happened. Yahweh kept his word. For 400 years, the Israelites were in Egypt and they became enslaved. But God says, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, the promised land, because of the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And Yahweh made a covenant with Abram, and he says, to your descendants, I give this land, the land of these 10 people. I'm going to highlight the Kenizzites, because when we get to Numbers chapter 32, that will be significant. But these 10 people, I'm going to give your descendants this land. And now they're on the brink of it. The people of Israel, they're on the move, they're on the march, they're at the border, and God says, send some men to spy it out, because no one who's alive in this camp has ever laid eyes on this land. It's a mystery. God's bringing us somewhere new. It's uncharted territory. And so at Yahweh's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran. All of them were leaders of the Israelites. These are their names. And uh, Moses gave Hosea, the son of Nun, from the tribe of Ephraim, he gave him the name Joshua. So a list of 12, one is highlighted as significant because a name has been changed. And you know that any time in the Bible you encounter someone whose name is changed, it's significant. Hosea means he saves, someone saves. Joshua means Yahweh saves. And if you translated Joshua into Greek, it would be Jesus. If you went from Greek to Latin, Latin to English, you'd end up with the name Jesus. It's the same name. All right, Yahweh saves. So Moses sent them to go explore Canaan. And he said, go up through the Negev, that's the southern region, and on into the hill country and see what the land is like. Whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many, what kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or are they fortified? How's the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees in it or not? And do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. Now it was the season for the first ripe grapes. Go into the land and see if it's good and take the fruit of the land. And if you're familiar with the book of Genesis, you might be thinking, hey, that kind of sounds like the Garden of Eden story, and you'd be right. Well, the spies, they went up, they explored the land from the desert of Zin as far as Rehob towards Lebo Hamath, and they went up through the Negev and they came to Hebron, where Ahiman, Sheshai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, lived. And we're like, who are the descendants of Anak? We don't know yet. We'll find out. Now, Hebron had been built seven years before Zon in Egypt, and when they reached the valley of Eshkol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. And we're like, whoop-de-doo, a single cluster of grapes. But they carried it on a pole between two of them. And we're like, oh, dang, that is, that's a cluster. And they also carried some pomegranates and some figs. And we're like, wait, figs. Um, oh, yeah, the last time we heard about figs, that's in Genesis chapter 3. It was a good story. And that place was called the Valley of Eshkol, literally grape cluster valley. Because of the grapes, the Israelites cut off there. And at the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. To this day, if you go to the modern nation state, Israel, their ministry of tourism has this as their symbol. Two men carrying a single cluster of grapes on a pole. Go visit and spend your money here, please. Um, 
Now they came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. And everyone's on pins and needles. What's, what's going to happen? What kind of land is this? It's a mystery. We've never been there before. And there they reported to them and to the whole assembly, and they showed them the fruit of the land, and they gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you send us, and indeed, it does flow with milk and honey. All right, and I know that really speaks to your, your hearts, like, oh, milk and honey. I mean, add some coffee beans, and we have a latte there, and that does sound good, I'll admit. But my best explanation is milk comes from animals, domesticated animals. You don't even have to kill them. You just get milk all the time, and it sustains you, and it's good. And honey is like the best of what you can find in the wild. Man, you're just walking along, and you come across a bee's nest, and there's this golden sweetness there. Like, this is a land of rich and abundant and delicious food. But, you know, the people who live there are powerful. And the cities are fortified and very large. And we even saw descendants of Anak there, whoever that is. And the Amorites, they live in the Negev. And the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, well, they live up in the hill country. And the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Well, then Caleb, son of Jephunneh, he's from the tribe of Judah. He silences everyone who's talking before Moses. And he says, we should go up and take possession of the land, we can certainly do it. You know, guys, we got this. But the men who had gone up with him says, we can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a, a bad report, a misleading or, or false report, like Joseph brought a bad report about his brothers to his dad. They spread a bad report about the land they'd explored. All right, so they're afraid. They say, we can't do it. Now watch what happens. We just had a, a pretty factual report of the land. Here it is, 2.0. They said, the land we explored devours those people living in it. Literally, the land eats people. And all the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim, and we seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. These people are huge, and we're tiny. And we're like, wait, who are the Nephilim? Oh, pre-Noah's flood, the Nephilim are those mythic heroes of ancient day. All right, we've gone from like a really good land with strong people and strong cities to a beastly land that eats people, and there are giants that are going to squish us. We don't stand a chance. We're doomed. These obstacles are insurmountable. We can't go up there. And so that night, all the members of the community, they raised their voices and they wept aloud. Just heartbroken. You know, you, you set your hope. You've gone through the wilderness. It's been over a year. You're looking forward to this good land and you get there and you realize we can't go in there. And it just crushes you. And all the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness, why is Yahweh bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and our children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should go choose a leader and go back to Egypt. You guys catch what they're saying? In light of what we're facing, Yahweh, you don't matter. Because there's no way that you're strong enough for us to conquer them. Yahweh, you're, you are not a force to be reckoned with. If we go in there, we would die. Yahweh, I know you, you've saved us, but honestly, we'd like to give your salvation back. We wish you hadn't. It would have been better to die slaves in Egypt than to experience life on your terms right now. We would rather have died in the wilderness than be brought here and watch you try to fulfill your promises. We don't believe you can. Screw you, God, and screw the leader that you've appointed. Far from blessing us, you're trying to kill us. So we're going to reject salvation on your terms. We're going to reject the leader on your terms. We're going to pick a new leader. We're going to go back to Egypt. We're going to tell daddy Pharaoh, hey, we're sorry. Would you take us back? And Moses and Aaron, I mean, 
they just fall face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. I suppose if your leadership is being threatened that much, just not saying anything and taking a posture of humility is probably a good idea. But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, so the spy from the tribe of Judah and the spy from the tribe of Ephraim, who are among those that explored the land, they ripped their clothes and they said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. It's a good land. And if Yahweh is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he will give it to us. He can do it. He can do it. Only do not rebel against Yahweh. And don't be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. That land won't eat us. We're going to eat them. Their protection is gone. Yahweh is with us. Do not be afraid of them. And in the Bible, do not be afraid is not don't, don't have inner tension or turmoil. It means don't let that turmoil affect the way that you act. Okay, it's like when, when kids are in line for the ride at the fair, if they're feeling nervous but they get on the ride, they were not afraid. If they get up to the front of the line and the carny opens the door and they're like, nope, and they bail, they were afraid. So the Bible is saying, it includes your emotions, but it's about your decisions and your will. And these guys are saying, don't be afraid. Yahweh's with us. We got this. We got them. <laughs> but the whole assembly, they talked about stoning them. We, we've gone now from fear to anger. We're faced with an impossible situation, they think, where they're going to die. And all of a sudden, the people who brought them to their death, like, you're trying to kill us. You don't have our best interests at heart. You have brought us here because you want to ruin us all, so we're going to ruin you first. And then the glory of Yahweh appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. And Yahweh says to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? Literally, I mean, God's saying, they treat me as inconsequential. Like, I, I don't even matter. I, I'm not a factor in this situation? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs I have performed among them? God says, what, what's the problem? It's faith. They don't believe in me. And so God tells Moses, I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them. And I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than me, than they. It's, it's pretty harsh. But this is exactly what the Israelites signed up for. They entered into the wilderness. They met with Yahweh, and Yahweh says, I would like to be your God. I'd like you to be my special people. We're going to be in a relationship from here on out. You're going to belong to me, and I'm going to belong to you. And all the people said, that sounds great. And God says, and if you listen to me, and you obey my commands, I will put none of the plagues that I put on the Egyptians on you. Why? Because I am Yahweh who heals you. And the people said, sounds great. But all of a sudden, in light of what they're facing, the people says, actually, God, we'd rather you not have healed us. And God says, okay, if I'm not healing you from the plague, then the plague is what you're going to get. Go to Leviticus 26. This is God keeping his word. He says, if you leave me, these are the consequences. And so for the second time in his life, Moses is given the offer, like, dude, we can start all over right now. Just get rid of these people. You will be Abraham 2.0. What do you think, Moses? You passed up on this chance a year ago at the golden calf incident. We can try again right now. I mean, you've already been complaining about how hard these people have been to lead. You want to start again? But Yahweh says, Moses says to Yahweh, well, then the Egyptians would hear about it. By your power, Yahweh, you brought these people up from among them, and they're going to tell the inhabitants of this land about it. See, they've already heard that you, Yahweh, are with these people, that you, Yahweh, have been seen face to face, that your cloud stays over them, and that you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Yahweh, I'm afraid to tell you, your reputation is already tied to these people. The Egyptians know about it, and they've already told the Canaanites about it. See, if you put all these people to death and you leave none of them alive, the nations who've heard this report about you will say, Yahweh was not able to bring these people into the land he promised them on oath. So he slaughtered them in the wilderness. 
Yahweh, if you kill them now, you're simply going to prove the Israelite accusation true. That you're not powerful to save. You're not able to deliver. You can't bring them in. You're not strong enough. And so far from being good, you're actually evil. And you brought them out here to kill them. So may the Lord's strength be displayed, just as you have declared. Yahweh is slow to anger, abounding in love, forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. So in accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people, just as you pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. Yahweh, I ask, think of your reputation. I need you to show yourself powerful right now by forgiving these people. We've got to talk about forgiveness for a second. A pastor in New York City passed away recently, a guy named uh, Tim Keller, just has a, a great metaphor to explain forgiveness. If I brought you into my home, made you food, we sat down for a good conversation, and as you were getting ready to leave, you accidentally knocked over my lamp and you broke it. What are we going to do? My lamp's broken. Now, I could make you pay for it, but I like you enough that I'd probably forgive you. But what forgiveness means is that instead of you paying for it, I'm going to pay for it. I have a lamp to replace. I mean, maybe I could fix it, and that's an investment of time and energy. Or maybe I go without light in my home. But at the end of the day, forgiveness means something wrong has occurred and someone has to pay. And one might even say that the greater your ability to forgive, the more powerful you are. See, I, I could write off a debt up to a certain number, but at a certain point, my bank account can't, can't handle a debt of a certain size. If God is able to write off the debt of the entire people, how powerful must he be? And Moses says, God, show yourself, show your power by forgiving these people. And Yahweh replies, I have forgiven them as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live, as surely as the glory of Yahweh fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory and the signs that I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness and who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. If these people would rather they had died in slavery than experience life on my terms, then I'm not going to bring them into the promised land. I'm forgiving them. They're not going to die right now. But I'm not taking them in. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit, and he follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land that he went to. His descendants will inherit it. And since the Amalekites and the Canaanites are living in the valleys, turn back tomorrow and set out toward the desert along the route to the Red Sea. This is, we just turned the car around. Change of plans. Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, he says, how long will this wicked community grumble against me? I've heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites. So tell them, as surely as I live, declares Yahweh, I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. In this wilderness, your body will fall. Every one of you, 20 years old or more, who was counted in the census and who have grumbled against me. Again, harsh, but God's just saying, fine, I will give you what you want. You say you would rather have died than let me bless you. Fine. You'd rather go back to Egypt than go to where I'd like to take you. Fine. I'm not going to let you go back to Egypt. But you guys can spend the rest of your life in the wilderness. And as for your children, you know, that you thought would be taken as plunder, I'm going to bring them in to enjoy the land you have rejected. You thought they would be plunder? No, they're going to grow up and they're going to plunder the people you're scared of. And as for you, your bodies will fall in this wilderness just as you asked. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in the wilderness. <laughs> unfaithfulness. Ah, what a tame word. See, God is not this contract God. He's not a, simply a rule giver, a law giver. You know, do this, this, and this, and, and fine. We're good. He's a relational God. 
He calls people into relationship with himself. He says, I'm going to be your God. You will be my people. These are relational terms. Like a marriage covenant between a man and a woman, God says, I would like to be the one who gets to love you, bless you, and satisfy you and your desires. And all of a sudden, you're telling me that you want out and you're going to look, for, look elsewhere for satisfaction? You guys are being a slut right now. You're being a whore. You want to go somewhere else. For 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days that you explore the land, you will suffer for your sins, and you will know what it's like to have me against you. I, Yahweh, have spoken. I will surely do these things to this whole wicked community which has banded together against me. You guys have called me your enemy because you say I brought you out here to kill you. Fine. You call me your enemy, you're going to know what it's like to have me as your enemy. And they will meet their end in this wilderness. Here they will die. And so the men Moses had sent to explore the land who returned and made the whole community grumble against him by spreading a bad report about it. These men who were responsible for spreading the bad report about the land, they were struck down and they died of a plague before Yahweh. So 10, the 10 highly responsible men, they die, but the whole community does not. For the next 40 years, God will let these people wander around in the wilderness and he will give them life. He will feed them every day with manna. He will give them water from the rock. He will sustain them and they will marry and they will have children and their children will have children and they will live out four decades of life because he's gracious and he's just and his mercy is also severe. And if they'd rather die in the wilderness than let God bless them with a good land, so be it. And of the men who went to explore the land, only Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh returned, survived. Now when Moses reported this to all the Israelites, they mourned bitterly. They're like, oh snap, what, what have we done? And when Moses, oh. And so early the next morning, they set out for the highest point of the hill country, saying, oh, you, now we're ready to go up into the land that Yahweh promised? Surely we've sinned. <laughs> all you parents know this moment with your kids, where you're like, fine, the consequence has arrived. And they're like, oh no, I know, I take it back, I'll obey now. Meaning, I don't want that consequence. But Moses said, why are you disobeying Yahweh's command? The rules have changed. This will not succeed. Don't go up. You won't, Yahweh is not with you. You will be defeated by your enemies, for the Amalekites and the Canaanites will face you there. Because you have turned away from Yahweh, he will not be with you, and you will fall by the sword. <laughs> you're doomed. You didn't think these, you don't think you could take these people with Yahweh? I guarantee you, you will not take on these people without Yahweh. But nevertheless, in their presumption, they went up towards the highest point of the hill country, though neither Moses nor the Ark of Yahweh's covenant moved from the camp. They're like, yeah, we're staying here. And the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and attacked them and beat them down all the way to Hormah. They kicked their butts. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. <laughs> it sucks. We're reading like, what is this? You, you were on the edge of, of everything, of, of a new venture, of unexplored land, of, of all God's blessings, and you looked in and you're like, yeah, yeah, no, no thanks. We'd rather not. In fact, God, we wish you never saved us at all. In fact, we think you're not good. In fact, we don't trust you. God says, fine. Fine. It's not the actual end of our passage. We go through Numbers 15, if you've been reading along with us. But as has been the case throughout uh, the biblical storyline, up until now and going forward, whenever you encounter people failing to trust God and engage with him relationally, God responds with a bunch of rules. And that's all chapter 15 is. It's a bunch more rules. And the rules are related to the stories we just met. So God says to Moses, hey, speak to the Israelites and say to them, you know what? After you enter the land that I'm giving to you, once you finally get there, here's what you need to do. And he gives them drink offering regulations. So from here on out, every sacrifice is going to have the fruit of the vine, you know, like grape cluster valley. We're going to remember that in all our sacrifices. 
And we're going to treat the foreigner and the stranger equal to the resident uh, citizen Israelite. Because one of those 12 spies is actually half Israelite. He's a foreigner. You have to wait till Numbers chapter 32 to find out. And if you happen to sin unintentionally, you know, in Leviticus 4, if you committed a sin of commission, meaning God says, don't do this, and you did it, here's how you make things right with God. Now we're given the sins of omission. If God says, you should do this, and you fail to live up to what God has said, here's how you make it right relationally. But anyone who sins defiantly, anyone who knows exactly who God is, exactly what he's done, and basically says, screw you, God, I'm doing it anyway. God says, if you do that, you are blaspheming Yahweh and you must be cut off from the people of Israel because you've despised Yahweh's word and you've broken his command and you're going to be cut off. Your guilt remains on them. All right, if you are guilty, then you deserve death because someone who's carrying this guilt around can't go to the source of life and blessing this holy God. There's, there's no, nothing to be done. If you look at the author and source of life and you say, yeah, no thanks. And so we're given another rebellion story about a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath. Doesn't seem like a big deal for us, but if you are the only person in a huge nation of people who wake up one morning and look around and no one else is moving because it's the Sabbath day, you should rest. And he's like, ah, God, you don't matter. I'm going to go pick up some firewood. The penalty is death. And so then God gives him another rule. He says, well, all right, Israelites, uh, you need... You need something else. So why don't you tie these tassels to the edge of your cloak? Put a bluer violet thread in them so that you will remember all the commands of Yahweh, that you may obey them and you may not prostitute yourselves. Play the whore. Look elsewhere for satisfaction. Why? By chasing after the lusts of your own hearts and your own eyes. And then you're going to remember to obey all my commands and you will be consecrated, set apart, to your God. You will be my special people because I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. I love you. That's what he's saying. I love you and I want to continue doing it. I am Yahweh, your God. Don't forget it. Remember me. I care about you. This is the the tragedy of tragedies in the Bible. This is the warning story beyond all warning stories. That Israel's lack of faith results in their death in the wilderness. They don't don't believe in God. They don't actually trust that he is good. That he can save them. That he's powerful. They don't trust. And so they're going to die for it. The story had all promise and hope. It was going to be a grand venture. And it ended in catastrophe. Much like the Ocean Gate submarine. If you've been watching the news, you know. On Sunday, they took a vessel down with five adults loaded on to go see the wreckage of the Titanic. And a couple hours later, they lost all contact with it. And five days later, they found the wreckage of the sub. And everyone on board is presumed dead, crushed instantly by the overpowering weight of 13,000 feet of water. And the saddest part is that this company had been warned. You know, other people who do these kind of deep dives, said, you guys are building with not the right equipment, you're not using the right materials, you know, your shape is wrong, and if anything goes wrong, you're, you're putting a bunch of lives at risk. And this company says, yeah, we got it. Don't worry about it. We trust ourselves. And a whole bunch of people died because they trusted in the wrong thing. Israel's lack of faith resulted in their death. See, the treat of God is, is inconsequential. He's not a real factor. He can't change the circumstances. What we're facing, ah, God doesn't matter here. And God says, well, you're going to suffer the consequences of treating me like that. Just as the story of the Ocean Gate catastrophe and, and the Titan submarine makes us long for something different. Oh, if only they had listened. You know, why did these five people have to die? Why did, why did millions of dollars have to be spent on this rescue operation. If only they had listened, if only they had changed their ways, if only these people, they didn't have to die. We read the story of the Israelites and we're like, if only, if only we had a people who would not trust their own eyes. It's an old story at this point in the Bible. 
like trusting your own eyes and what looks good to you rather than trusting in what God says is actually good. If only there was a people who wouldn't trust their own hearts or treat Yahweh as if he doesn't matter or fear their circumstances more than their God, who would rather die in the wilderness than let God actually save them and give them life. If only. If only they're more like their father Abraham, who received an impossible promise from God. If you don't know the story, Abraham was an old, old man married to an old, old woman, and they were long past the age of having kids. And yet God says, hey, go outside one nighttime sky. And Abraham looks up at the nighttime sky, undimmed by the polluted light pollution of the earth's atmosphere. And God says, count the stars. And imagine Abraham's like, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. He's wearing shoes, so he decided to stop there. You, know, you can't. And at that point, you realize that this is impossible. God says, so shall your offspring be. Abram, right now you have zero, but I promise you that I'm going to give you more descendants than the number of stars in the sky. And against all hope and all evidence to the contrary, Abram believed that Yahweh was trustworthy. He believed him, and Yahweh credited it to him as righteousness. This is where the story starts. This is the grand hope of rescue is that there was a man who was willing to trust what God said was actually true. But we come to this passage today and we find out that there's a people descended from that man who fail to trust. They refuse to believe in me in spite of everything that I've done. And so they don't get to go in. See, we're on this journey of life. We're all trying to trust in something to live a significant life. And how do we get there and who do we listen to? And Disney and culture say, look inside yourself. Look to your feelings. Look to your heart. That'll tell you what to do. At the, the block party on Friday, my daughter was given this beautiful pin of this rainbow flag. It's gorgeous. It's Pride Month. She didn't know what that was about. And I got to explain to her that, that this flag, this rainbow symbol, has been used to symbolize people in a way of thinking about sexuality and gender that says, look inside yourself, discover what your feelings are, and if you want to be satisfied and live a meaningful and true life, live that out. And I got to share with my daughter, it says that is a symptom of a larger cultural narrative. All right, it's not just these type of people. All of America and all of the world right now is saying, look inside at what you feel. Your feelings are true. What the Bible actually says is that Looking inside at your feelings and trusting your own assessment of things is exactly why the world is as screwed up as it is. This is why sin and death and evil exist in the world, all right? It's because we're looking inside at our feelings, and our feelings are not the best gauge of what will lead to a good life. God is. And the story of the Bible begs us and pleads with us, do not trust your own assessment of things. Trust the author of life who created humanity and listen from him, and you'll have a good life. See, the truth is, is that all sin stems from unbelief. Every, every way that we fail to live up to who we should be and how we should live, it comes first by not believing God. In his preface to the book of Romans, Martin Luther writes that the scriptures see into our hearts, to the root and the main source of all sin, unbelief in the depth of the heart. So even as faith alone makes just and brings the spirit and the desire to do good external works. You know, faith prompts all good works. So it is only unbelief which sins and exalts the flesh and brings desire to do evil external works. All right, every act that we take shows whether we trust God or not. And the story says that God will judge those who treat him like he doesn't matter. And that God's judgment often means giving people what they want. All right? You, you live a certain way because you don't trust God. If you are married and you go and you want to have an affair, it's because you don't trust God that your greatest satisfaction and joy and life will be found in submitting to God's will and staying faithful to this person that you live with. It feels like death and you think, I'll be satisfied if I go over there. And God says, oh, it's because you don't actually trust me. If you feel the need to steal and cheat people in order to find security in life, it's because you don't actually trust that God will provide for your needs. So you've got to go find it elsewhere. 
And God says, if we're in a relationship and you're looking elsewhere for satisfaction, you're cheating on me. And I'm not okay with it. And the worst, one of the worst things that can happen to you is that God might actually let you get away with it. He might actually give you what you want. And it can be disastrous. For instance, man mocks alligators, jumps into water, and is killed in Texas. There's a big old sign in Texas, 2015. No swimming, alligators. And Texas guy's like, don't tell me what to do. In he goes, and he dies. The moron, following your heart, got you killed. How about this one? Man dies after lighting firework on top of his head. It was an illuminating experience, I'll tell you what. Felt good at the time. But of course, no one would ever do that again. San Antonio man dies after lighting firework on his head, police say. This is just last year. Guys, 4th of July is coming up. Believe me, it's not worth it. <laughs> okay. Following your desires, the Bible says, will get you killed. Because the Israelites did not believe that God was true or that his presence mattered, they would die in the wilderness. God will give them what they want. If you would rather die than let God give you life on his terms, God says, so be it. As C.S. Lewis says, there's only, there's only one option that every human being will face. Either we turn to God and we say, thy will be done. Or we will find that God has turned to us and say, okay, thy will be done. When we don't trust God, we freak out over circumstances. So let me just forecast, all right, next year, it's another election year in America. I'm so sorry, guys. Politics matters. The United States matters. I, I dearly love this country. But here's, here's the thing. We believe that God is sovereign over all the nations of the world and that no one can take him off his throne. So does it matter who's in the White House? Yes, yes, it matters. Does it ultimately matter who's in the White House? No, because our hope is not in America. Our hope is in God. But if we, if we come unglued because of the outcome of a political election, it shows that we have failed to trust in God. Or what about COVID? COVID was a terrible thing, yes. Did COVID change our reality? Well, what would happen? COVID could kill you. But we are all going to die one day anyway. COVID maybe will speed up the process and make it more uncomfortable along the way. But again, if we come unglued, because we feel like we're threatened by an insurmountable obstacle, it might show that we don't actually believe in God. See, the reality that this story highlights for us is that God will let us experience hell if we really want to. It's the choice the Israelite community made. We would rather have been slaves in Egypt. God, we would rather not have your salvation. We wish we had died in Egypt, and God says, fine. And God gives every human being the option. You can trust him and let him give you life and joy and blessing and salvation. But if you don't trust him and you don't believe in him, then he will let you experience death apart from him. That's called hell. It's separation from God because that's what you want. This is a warning, guys. God is faithful to keep his promises and he will let us reject them. He will carry us to where he has for us to go, and he will let us walk away. Don't do that. The question is, do we actually know who our God is? I ask this question sometimes to people, like, why, why does God save you? And if they respond, well, it's because I do good things, then I know they don't get the gospel at all. If this, a tr if this is a transactional thing of like, well, God, I'm going to do these things for you so that you do those things for me, at that point, we are, we are hiring God for our own pleasure. We're treating him like a prostitute. But if we say, God, because God loves me, and he's entered into a relationship with me because of Jesus, and because I know him and I love him, then I do these good things, well, then it just makes sense. Now we're in a relationship. It's totally different. Do we know who he is? Is he good? Does he love us? Is he true? Do we trust him? Can God be trusted? That's the question. But again, I want to warn you to be wary of the consequences of treating God as inconsequential. 
And we do it every time we sin. We do it every time we, we fail to keep his command. Every time we show that, God, you know, I will go with you this far, but ooh, that looks scary, and that looks like it's going to kill me. I can't go there, God, because I don't really trust you. And all sin stems from unbelief, but all righteousness stems from faith. Whatever is not of faith is sin. And the story creates a longing in us. You know, a longing that we wouldn't have people like that. But maybe that we'd have people kind of like Caleb, a people who have a different spirit within them, who wholeheartedly follow Yahweh's ways and who know the power of his forgiveness and the surety of his presence, who will go wherever he leads, even if it means waiting in the wilderness. A lot of you guys have suffered profoundly for other people's decisions, for what your parents or your grandparents did for you, for the people that you're in close relationship, your friends, your spouse, your relatives, your teachers. You have been wronged by the stranger down the street and has changed your life forever. And that's reality right now. And just as the Israelite children and Caleb and Joshua, who did nothing wrong, will wander for 40 years waiting for God to keep his promises, suffering for the sins of other people, that's a state that many of us find ourselves in, waiting on God, waiting in hope that he is strong and powerful enough that even though we're suffering now, he will, in the end, keep his promises and he's worth trusting. So let me talk about Jesus for a minute. Because the story of the Bible says that what plays out in the Israelite story continues to play out throughout history. People don't trust God. And what God needs to do is actually bring a new spirit and change our hearts and make, write his laws not on tablets of stone, but inside human hearts so that we want to do what he says. And so in the fullness of time, God took on human flesh and was born as a baby in backwater nowhere. And his name was Jesus. And he lived a perfect life for us in our place. And just as we wanted to stone Moses, so people in Jesus' day, they wanted to stone him, and eventually they got him, and they nailed him to a Roman cross, and he died innocently on behalf of humanity. And they threw his body into a tomb hastily, and then on the third day, God raised him from the dead to show that he is the one I'm bringing salvation through. You don't get to pick a new leader. I've already chosen him, and he's the one I picked. And you rebel against him, and you treat me like I don't matter, and you're going to deal with me, and you don't want that. But because of Jesus, our longings can be fulfilled, that we can be a people who have the Holy Spirit now within us, who have Yahweh's ways written on our hearts, who know the power of his forgiveness, the surety of his presence, that we might go wherever he leads, even if it means waiting in the wilderness, Jesus changes everything for us. And so now instead of looking in our hearts for our feelings to find out what's true, and living that out, we look inside ourselves, and you know what we find? We find a war going on. Because we have one part of us that desires to go and do our own thing, and then we have this other part of us, the Holy Spirit speaking and saying, I don't think that's a good idea. And now we're in conflict. But because God's Spirit is in us, we now have the power to say no to the things that we used to chase after that ultimately will lead to our death. And we can choose to follow God and to experience his blessings. Why? Because Jesus has made that possible for us. It changes everything. So where do we go? Believe, guys. That's it. If you remember one thing, remember this. God is trustworthy. Trust him. Believe in him. So trust Jesus and remember. Remember who he is. Remember what he's done. So put reminders around. Maybe it's a tassel on your garment if you're into that kind of thing. Maybe you need to write scriptures and, and tape them up on your bathroom mirror. Put them as a background on your phone. Put them on your, on your door before you go out. Maybe grab a pen right now and just write Jesus on your hand or help the person sitting next to you and write Jesus on their hand. Celebrate the Holy Spirit and hope in the promised land. I say the promised land. I'd say heaven, but heaven for most of us has these Images of far side comic books of like puffy white clouds and golden harps, and I don't really play a harp, and that looks pretty boring, honestly. But the hope of heaven, the Bible, is, is that one day God comes to earth. Heaven and earth will be joined on an earth made new, and we will experience resurrection, that what was dead will come alive again, and we who trust in Jesus will live forever in God's presence. Believe him. Let's have a prayer for you to pray.
Last week, Trevor gave you a prayer. God, it would have been enough if you just did this, but you've gone above and beyond, so thank you. So here's a prayer to pray. I didn't write it. It comes from the New Testament about a father who encountered a situation that seemed beyond all hope. His son was possessed by a demon, and he came to Jesus and says, Jesus, if you can do anything, I, I don't know. And Jesus says, yeah, anything is possible for those who believe. And the man cries out. He says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. It's a good prayer for us. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. God, God I trust you, but, oh, shoot, that looks really scary. Help me, because <laughs> I'm not sure I really do. Not yet. Help me. And he can. And he will. Family of Grace, I want nothing more than for us to avoid the consequences that come from treating God as inconsequential. Because if we demand it, God will give us hell instead of heaven. But we can avoid it. And we will avoid it because we know him. And because we love him. And because we will be blessed by him because of what Christ has done for us. Let's pray. Father, help. Spirit, help us. Help us to believe. We do believe, but except when we don't, help our unbelief. Father, thank you for a warning that all the miracles in the world do not produce belief, but belief comes by trusting in your word, in your character, and in your promises. God, thank you for that, this that has been written for our benefit, that we can read the stories of how these people absolutely blew it, and maybe we can choose differently because you have empowered us to do so. Father, help us to treat you as real and to recognize that when we are tempted to go our own way, it reflects the fact that we don't actually trust that you're good and that you're true and that you desire to save and to bless us. Would you help us to live as a different people, as those who have been made one with you in Jesus Christ, as those who have been forgiven and made new, of those who have been accepted on Christ's behalf. And so, Father, may your word be stronger than our feelings. May your character be stronger than our temptations. Help us, please, to live as Christ now, to trust you always and forever. Amen.